economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. Today in our show, we have Dr. Russell McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. We also have our other graduate assistant, Luke Graham, and we have a special guest today on our show. All right. Well, I just want to turn it right over to Peter because we have a special guest that Peter knows pretty well. That's right. We have joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Chris Coyne. Dr. Coyne is a professor of economics at George Mason, and he's also the associate director of the F.A. Hayek program there at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He recently released a book called Manufacturing Militarism, co-authored with multiple time co-author Dr. Abigail Hall. And Chris, it's great to have you on today. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to go over this book, Chris, because whenever I read you, I kind of view you as a sort of a, a positive triple threat. And what I mean by that is you have an interesting research program, which we'll get into a little bit. You, in, you research interesting things. You write clearly, which is very hard for academics. And so the writing clearly really kind of differentiates you from the pack. And then third, you're not a charlatan, which is that you don't overextend your research into, you know, making statements that aren't true or, or you know, you don't engage in scientism. Your method is good. So we're excited to have you on manufacturing militarism. Well, thank you for that. That's very yeah. flattering. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the book? We know for the viewers at home, it, it deals a lot with military propaganda. Can you tell us, you know, in your research, uh, what did you come to? What is propaganda, Chris? Sure. So the way that Abby and I think about propaganda, in the broadest sense, it is the intentional effort to shape the views, beliefs, and actions of some target audience so that they align with the goals of the propagandist and to move people in a way that they otherwise would not move, to align their interests, their goals, their willingness to go along. And of course, propaganda and war have been aligned and have they're correlated and perhaps causal throughout much of human history across governments. Uh, but of course, especially in America for, for those who have studied it. And one of the things we really highlight in the book is that democracies are not immune to the negative effects of government propaganda. And so you know, kind of the well-known cases that pretty much anyone that's even been through a high school history class knows about is during World War I, of course, you had the Committee on Public Information, which was a very transparent effort to shape public opinion. During World War II, you had the Office of War Information, which again was created by FDR with the explicit purpose of distilling and presenting information to the American people. The government kind of partnered with journalists and filmmakers during World War II to again, explicitly make pro-war propaganda. And, you know, the interesting part about more present day propaganda is it's not as blunt and explicit. In fact, if you asked most members of the federal government and in the national security state, they would say they don't engage in propaganda. So that's kind of the, the challenge for citizens and for those who are concerned with these issues. I just was curious, propaganda versus advertising. I mean, why do we use the word propaganda? Is there something more connected to it being with government or something? or Well, you know, some people do use it in the context of markets like Noam Chomsky, for instance, who wrote a famous book called Manufacturing Consent, which our titles a play off that. He made the argument that mass media, privately owned corporate media, 
influences the preferences and behaviors of individuals all, often for the worse. I think there are a couple important differences though, and Abby and I try to tease those out. You know, part of it is that advertising is meant to inform, but there's contestability. So in a market, we have contestability where I can advertise my product. You can advertise your product. Peter can advertise his. It's possible that we have misleading information, one of us, but through market forces, we tend to think that that misinformation will be weeded out. That is, you only can trick people for, for so long. It's a little different in the realm of things like government activity in general, but especially in matters of, of the national security state, because uh, of course, government has a monopoly over the control of the various aspects of national security and of information flows. That is, there, there's no way for you know, citizens, let alone for many watchdog groups and even members of Congress, to independently verify information that's being told, which is why oftentimes we have to rely on whistleblowers releasing that information. And so I think those are some of the key differences between advertising and propaganda from our perspective, at least. So Chris, I can sort of like hear the reply already, the, you know, the go-to reply, which is there is competition, you know, in, in government. And the way that we have competition is we have voting, right? Like people can vote out politicians if they feel like they've been lied to. And why, why doesn't voting capture the same competitive benefits as like market competition? Sure. So you're certainly correct that many people would point to the voting booth as a disciplinary device in democratic politics. And some would go as far as saying that it mimics the efficacy of feedback and punishment in that we observe in markets. But there's a couple issues, of course. One is the idea that there's what economists call rational ignorance. Simply the idea that since one single vote has such a small impact or the potential to have such a small impact on the outcome of the electoral process, that no voter has a strong incentive to gather detailed information on things that don't directly impact them. And foreign affairs is one of those things. But as I mentioned, there's another wrinkle to this, which is let's say that rational ignorance didn't apply. It does apply, but let's pretend for the sake of discussion, it doesn't. Or there's a citizen that is truly passionate and other regarding and really wants to gather information. As I mentioned, there's simply no way to do that for most of the most important aspects of national security. There's no way for an ordinary American citizen to get details on the scope and scale of the US surveillance state, absent whistleblowers revealing that information, which of course the government tries to punish and, and keep locked down. If a ordinary American citizen was interested in gathering information about the US government's drone program, there'd be no way for them to do that because the government purposefully has covered it in layers of secrecy. And the only time they admit that anything is going on, as we saw recently in Afghanistan, is when parties on the ground are able to gather information and reveal it. And so the, the short of it is that voters are severely curtailed in their ability to monitor politicians and then to punish them. And of course, elections are held on every four years. So you know, even if a politician was doing something that you didn't want them to do, you'd have to wait a significant amount of time to punish them at the, at least in the executive branch. And so you combine all these things together and it weakens the, that check as a, as a effective check on government power and abuses of that power. Yeah, I think uh, Justin has a question, so I'll, I'll let him go in a second. But one thing that you just said that I was like amazed in the book by one of the examples is that 
even if you're interested in troop counts of you know, American troops overseas, there's like, I think I read in the book, 40,000 troops whose location is described as unknown. Like we don't even know where the people in our military are. <laughs> so that, that was amazing to me. So Justin, you had a question? Yeah, a, um, I've enjoyed your discussion so far. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, in your book, Manufacturing Militarism. And if we're talking about propaganda, one of the things that I think about when I think of propaganda is that it's usually a necessary feature of propaganda that's when it's working, the people who are consuming it don't know that they are consuming propaganda. And so I was wondering if you could point us to some contemporary propaganda that maybe we may be consuming without understanding that it is propaganda and especially propaganda that supports militarism. Sure, that's a, a great question. And you're certainly right that you know, one of the features of, of propaganda is that it becomes kind of a normalized part of life and also integrated into life such that people don't think of it as something that is, is trying to manipulate them. Just to provide one illustration, you know, we, we, we have a, two chapters in the book on Iraq. One is the run-up to the Iraq war and the efforts of the U.S. government to conceal and manipulate information both domestically and, of course, on the international floor as well, when Powell spoke to the United Nations and made it sound like there was ironclad evidence of weapons of mass destruction, relationships between the Hussein regime and, and al-Qaeda and so on, which turned out to be completely false. But even after that, then we have a, a subsequent chapter on kind of the, the selling the war because the Bush administration had to keep public opinion supportive of the war after it started. And one of the things they did was they, the, the Bush administration, well, it was, this was all intertwined. They would send out people that were connected to their administration. So former members of the military, they would promote them as independent analysts to cable news. They would provide those supposed experts with talking points. Those people would then either talk about them on live TV or serve as a source to the New York Times. They then would be quoted in the New York Times, and then Dick Cheney and George Bush would reference the article or reference the newscast as support of their position. So you had this circular flow of information that was originating with the Bush administration that was being filtered through various media sources, through supposed experts, and given to the U.S. populace as if it was objective information, and then it was being used by the Bush administration as evidence of their position. There's no way, again, a ordinary citizen could know this at the time until it was revealed that the Bush administration had this program in place. And so you can see how those type of things are very different than, you know, propaganda during the world wars when, when there were the posters that everyone knows about in the movies. And even then people may not have realized the full extent of it, but it's not as blunt and in your face, but it's in, in some sense, that's what it makes it even more troublesome from our mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah, I'm trying to think somebody might just sit back and say, okay, so we have kind of a conundrum then that we need to keep these things secret, but yet it leaves some elite class unchecked, perhaps, or that there's discretion left with them to make these moves, whether it be with the propaganda or with the actual drone strikes themselves or, or whatever. So where do we take it from that point that it's kind of this conundrum? Is it better to lean towards limiting their stuff and, and try to stay more protectionist uh, locally, or we just have to live with that as, as one of the unfortunate outcomes of this? Yeah, well, you highlight, a, I think, a very important tension and one perhaps there's no easy answer to, but certainly one we can think about. And I think on, 
initially, I think recognizing the tension and talking about it is, is step number one. You know, a, a lot of people, both the citizenry, but certainly policymakers, certainly people sitting 13 miles from where I am in Washington, D.C., have a kind of homogenous view that liberty, freedom, safety, and security exist only because there is a massive national security apparatus that is protecting it. On top of that, more is preferred to less from that perspective, right? So if, if it's necessary and it's doing its job, then, then more must be better. And the problem with that is it overlooks the significant cost associated with the tension you pointed out. You're pointing out in the context of classification of what's considered secret information, but even more broadly, just the, the power associated with that apparatus. If we don't have skepticism towards it, then of course we run the risk of it being used not to protect our liberties and freedoms, but to undermine them. Now, the current classification system of national security actually went into effect in the 1940s. Roosevelt issued an executive order, and you can see why he did it. So you have the World War, and then, of course, you're moving into the Cold War. And the concern by many was that communists, and certainly communists on U.S. soil, were going to somehow infiltrate the government and get access to information that was going to undermine national security. So they put the ramped up classification system in place. But just think about basic economics. If you allow government agents to classify things and not make them public, the incentive is to overclassify. And we talk about in the book how there have been numerous government commissions and studies on how there is overclassification. So things that have no business being classified as national security are classified because they allow those who do it to conceal their true behaviors. I can overspend in my budget. I can waste resources. I can engage in behavior that has nothing at all to do with national security. And by classifying it, I limit the number of people that can see it. And so there's certainly low-hanging fruit that if people were serious about this, they could tighten that system up. Members of Congress could do this, but no one really has the incentive to do it because the people that uh, would uh, uh, be punished by it have a, a stronger incentive to push back and protect that system. And so to my way of thinking, you know, at, at a minimum, recognizing that tension that you so nicely highlighted, I think is step one. The other kind of broader and perhaps more radical implication is to curtail the portfolio of activities undertaken by the national security state. Now, again, that's very hard to do in itself for the reasons I just touched upon, but doing that, curtailing the kind of scope of activities that falls under the purview of the national security state, which truly is expansive. I mean, if you think about it, it literally covers every single aspect of the globe. And for the domestic populace, it literally covers every single aspect of your life. Anything you do online, your financial transactions, all of those things are either monitored or can be monitored by those that control the surveillance apparatus. And so it's, it is perhaps one of the most, if not the most dangerous system in the history of mankind. And, and I don't think that's exaggeration. That doesn't mean that it is being used in that way, in an authoritarian way, but it certainly can be. And that's the concern. That's the concern Hayek might have on a, on a road to serfdom, that as we build this up, does it fall into the wrong hands? So this looks like a good spot for our break. And when we come back, we'll just continue our conversation of whether we should have faith in our current system. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordian Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. 
The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governments, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Wharton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. We have a high school event coming up uh, that has a nationwide call. We've partnered up with the Foundation for Economic Education and bringing in some great speakers like TK Coleman and Dr. Jim Gortney. And the students will be participating in our new PPE League event. That is philosophy, politics, and economics where high school minds compete and flourish. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. We're continuing our discussion here. Dr. Chris Coyne, some interesting stuff on propaganda and military spending, where our tax dollars go. About 65% of our federal tax dollars go towards redistribution, uh, take from the rich, give to the poor, take from the healthy, give to the unhealthy, take from the employed, give to the unemployed, blah, blah, blah. But there's a good 35% here is what we're talking about that I didn't know it actually went to Hollywood films, apparently, as part of our funding. So Justin, you had a question regarding Hollywood for Chris? Yeah, so I was familiar with some of the propaganda that Hollywood was involved in at the end of, and you know, right at the end of World War II and shortly after. I'm thinking of films like Your Job in Germany and Hitler Lives. And these are, you know, if you watch them today, you mentioned earlier that the past propaganda seemed pretty blunt. And these are extremely blunt if you watch them, right? They're like caricatures. And the point of them is that, you know, Hitler lives in the heart of all Germans and we need to fight the eternal German. I mean, it seems insane when you watch these things now. And Hitler Lives was directed by Don Siegel, who also directed Dirty Harry, right? So this is people who are deeply tied to Hollywood. And I'm wondering, since it seems like that kind of blunt instrument, you know, we like to think that wouldn't work on us now. Is it the case that the instruments have gotten better and that this these propaganda tools are, you know, still shape us to the same degree because they're more precise and, and less blunt? Or, you know, have we just gotten better at recognizing propaganda? And so that's the way it's gone. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this in general. Yeah, it's a, a great point. And, and you're certainly right. You know, you look at this stuff during the Second World War, and it's extremely blunt. You know, the other really famous case, of course, in addition to the films you mentioned, were the Oscar award-winning filmmaker Frank Capra, was contracted by the U.S. government to make a series of documentaries under the general title, Why We Fight. And again, you look at these and, you know, it's pretty blunt what's what's going on here, which is it's trying to convince the American public that get on board with the war and, and, and all that. And so why do we see a different world today? I think it's a couple of reasons. One, I think technology has changed. So you know, the, during the world wars, during that earlier period, many people were more reliant on film and going to the movies to get information. And outside of that, they had more limited access so that the, the U.S. government could kind of have direct contact with them through that. But also, I think people's expectations have changed. As I think, as you put correctly, if, you know, I, I think peop many people today would be offended if there was something as blunt as the films you highlighted. And so what we have today is kind of this mixed bag. And, and the other thing I just mentioned before I go on, the change was that, you know, in the wake of the world wars, 
there was kind of this renewed commitment, at least rhetorically, by members of the U.S. government to not explicitly propagandize the American population. And so to the extent those norms exist, the blunt type of propaganda perhaps isn't on the menu. But so what we have today is really some kind of covert entanglement that occurs between the Department of Defense and Hollywood. And what what you get is not so much direct control, but indirect control in the form of subsidies. And so what happens is, you know, think about how many action movies there are. And so one of them we highlight in the book is Transformers. And you say, well, Transformers, what does that have to do with, you know, military and propaganda? Yeah, I hate to to interrupt Chris, but you got a good chuckle out of me with the headline, Transformers more than meets the eye. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a a child of the 80s who grew up watching the cartoon, I was made me very happy to do it. I I take full credit for that part of it. Uh, (laughs) Abby can take credit for everything else, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm older than she is. So anyway, you know, you say, well, what does that do propaganda? Well, if you think about that movie or those type of action movies, you realize that there is an enormous amount of equipment, personnel, set fees and, and costs of setting things up. And what the military offers to filmmakers is access to equipment, to a set, so to go onto military bases or training grounds, and expertise at either a severely discounted cost or free of charge. But of course, in exchange for that, they want approval of the script. And so from their perspective, and legally, they're able to say, well, we're not producing propaganda because we're not forcing this on anyone. They can opt out. But if they're going to get stuff from us, then we want to get stuff from them. And what do they want to get? They want to get control of the messaging. And so in the book, we talk about numerous cases, everything from you know Transformers to the television show Lassie to many other examples where people sub- had to submit their scripts and materials and, and get feedback and incorporate that feedback from the Department of Defense. And so I think that's the other you know, big aspect as well. And you know, in the wake of the world wars, the U.S. government has been a continuous war for decades. Again, people have this, it's a, it's a misnomer that there's like, even Biden yesterday, I saw him speaking at the UN, he said, we're not at war for the first time in 20 years. And it's like, what are you talking about? I, I guess if you define war so narrowly, then perhaps. But I think the, the more interesting exercise for citizens of this country is to look at its history year by year. And you'd be hard pressed to find a year when the U.S. government is not intervening militarily abroad somewhere. That doesn't mean it's a, a declared war, but that's a very poor standard since Congress gave up that game long ago in formally declaring wars, which is, of course, their constitutional responsibility. But that's a different topic. And so you know, I raise that because I think a key part of this is kind of this constant sense of militarism and this constant comfort uh, and normalization of, of the military, because these films tend to glorify the military. And we document in the book that, you know, when they, they, they get these partnerships with the Department of Defense, anything that makes them look bad, they want cut out, they want dropped. And again, you can understand from their perspective why, but then think about what the implications are for the way that viewers of all ages, because of course, it's not just adults consuming movies like the Transformers, but also younger audiences start thinking about and framing these various issues regarding to the military. Yeah, none of the book is funny in the sense that it's all serious, but there was some sort of dark humor in the idea that, well, at least I don't have to blame people's bad tastes on the Transformer movies. The Transformer (laughs) movies we can officially categorize as government failure. Uh, (laughs) It would not have existed without government intervention. Yeah, actually, from from now on, that's how it categorizes. Kind of playing on that. um, Has anybody ever 
tried to put forth a policy that this should be ended, that we should not allow the government to fund, subsidize Hollywood films or something. I mean, to me, that sounds like if there was knowledge, getting back to what you said of people, the average Joe understanding that this is going on in the first place, you know, could a politician potentially bring a policy forward to say, I don't think the government should be involved in, in doing that. I don't know so, if that would fall short or if it's ever been tried. Yeah, I, not that I know of in terms of being tried. It would be hard, I think, because just like anything, there's vested interest groups on, on both the Hollywood side, but also for the people on the base and in the surrounding area, of course, it brings business to them. And so, and of course, you get the messaging. So it's it's a free form of, you know, getting the message out of the greatness of the military. So to my knowledge, no one has tried it. Again, there, there are laws on the books, even though as we talk about in the conclusion, there are significant gaps in the language that the US government is not supposed to be able to actively create propaganda on domestic soil. But I think, again, given the way the lack of definition and the lack of enforcement, I think it falls far short. So my next question is directly related to what you just said about propaganda on on uh, U.S. soil. Can you say a little bit about militaristic propaganda and sports? Certainly. So again, the, the connection between sports and the U.S. military goes back a long time, decades. And we talk about this in the book, but I, I, I won't repeat that history here. All I'll say is, um, you know, this really came to light. And again, anyone that's been to a sporting event sees this. There is typically some kind of patriotic showing at the beginning of pretty much every sporting event from professional sports to college sports and sometimes even at the at the high school level i'm not just talking by the way about things like the national anthem i'm talking about of military displays for professional sports these very elaborate flyovers and you know in some cases kind of people parachuting in and reuniting families things that certainly warm the heart when you when you see them but then we start taking them for granted and what we take for granted is that, well, where do these things kind of come from? What's going on here? What's the purpose of this? And when you start diving into it in a little more detail, you realize that there's some kind of suspect aspects to this. And this came to light a couple couple years ago, and, and this is one of the things we use to motivate this, is this idea of, of what has been called paid patriotism. And really what had happened is the Department of Defense was paying NFL teams and NHL teams Significant amounts of money. I'm in the millions of dollars. So I think for the NFL teams between 2012 and 2015, if I remember correctly, the Department of Defense paid $6 million for access to the opening of, of football games and to do these, these displays. Um, again, with the idea of you know, normalizing militarism. And again, it, you know, one of the great problems with this is it kind of disarms people in terms of just it becomes a normal part of life, but it also becomes you don't need to worry about the soldiers' lives because you feel like you've done your part, right? You, you went to the, you're, you're at the stadium, you have your $15 beer in your hand, they come out, you cheer, you salute, you, whatever goes on, and then you sit back down and go on your life. And you feel like you've, you know, a lot of people feel like, okay, we've supported the soldiers. But really one of the questions we want to ask is why are the soldiers being put in harm's way in the first place? Why, why are you know, these are actual human beings, our fellow citizens being sent abroad, being put in harm's way, but for what? And so again, to our way of thinking, this is just another avenue through which the government is normalizing these relationships between the military and the populace. And again, it's certainly not as blunt as it was in the past. You know, during the world wars, 
is extremely blunt. You know, the members of the military would go to these games. They'd invite fans to the various bases after to give them tours of the bases. And and so there, there was much more blunt type efforts, but it's pretty clear now if you pay attention. And so like, instead of just staring at the TV or if you're live next time you're at a sporting event, just pay attention to what's going on and think about it. And, and you should be like, this is somewhat odd when you start thinking about what's happening. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to ask you to speculate here and you can feel free to turn down and deny my, my request for speculation. As a, a Christian, you know, kind of, kind of a, a non-denominational Christian myself, a lot of what I get from the Bible involves the, the idea that we, we need to have faith in God, but not necessarily faith in man. Like the anthropology that's set forth in the Bible is that like ultimately you need to be careful because man has fallen and all this sort of thing. And yet what I seem to find is that in a lot of churches, U.S., there's sort of like a, a, and you know, this is my experience as a, a Christian. It, it, my, my experience in churches is that there seems to be almost rampant patriotism in a similar degree that you see at sporting events and things like this. Do you, or have you looked into it all if there has been, you know, is this something that is unnatural and was developed over time by the government also, this relationship between patriotism and churches, or have you not looked enough to, to comment? What's your thought on this? I haven't looked at that specifically, so I'll refrain from commenting on that. But let me say something related, if I might, which is I don't think there is anything inherent between Christianity or other religions and patriotism, or th there doesn't have to be. So I think there's other factors driving it. Let me just say many different religions throughout history have been drivers and contributors to anti-war efforts efforts to focus on peace making, because what those efforts oftentimes are grounded in is the dignity and respect of your fellow human beings, irregardless of the differences in type on kind of the common margins, nationality, ethnicity, religious differences. And so on the one hand, you're certainly right. And, and I, I've certainly observed this as well. There, there are certain and it's not even entire denominations, it's certain groups within them that are, are right. rampant patriots. But and I, when I say that, I mean, rah-rah proactive militarism. But that's, yeah, I think, across different excessive. groups. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like over the top. It's almost religious in the way they, you know, they view it. But there, I, I want to say there's the opposite as well. I think we can find both historically and in the present groups of people that are committed to alternative approaches to to human relations that is when not to deny that conflict between people exists but that the political instrument of the military doesn't have to be the primary source of resolving those conflicts doesn't mean that that it's never going to be involved but rather than elevating it as the primary tool there are ways of viewing it and of course if you look at to tie this back to our broader discussion if you look at us efforts to surveil people americans during the, the 50s and 60s, many of them were religious leaders. And, and part of the reason they were religious leaders is because they were involved in the civil rights movement. Part of it was they were involved in the anti-war movement. Part of it was they were socialists and, and the US government was worried about the socialists and communists. But you saw that even then, that relationship between religious commitments and anti-war commitments. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way before. I think that's enlightening. I think you're right that if you look back at like the history of religious traditions, there is a big anti-war bent maybe to it. And so we can even go back to the Catholic Church and like how stringent it is to, to declare a just war, just war theory. It's very difficult to justify a war on just war theory.
And so, yeah, I, I think you're right that the history of religion tends to show a lot of like anti-war sentiment. And yet, you know, my observation, whether or not it's correct, I guess is an empirical question. My observation is that there seems to be a lot of like rampant, uh, you know, militarism running around in, in some churches today. And yeah, it would be interesting to see if everything were unclassified, what the discussions on religion and mili- militarism looks like behind closed doors. I'd like, as we start to bring this to a close, it, this is a question I maybe should have posed at the beginning, <laughs> and that's really uh, militarism, but I think now it'll come in a different lens. I'm kind of picking up that militarism in itself is some sort of unhealthy bias toward military control or power. And Chris, I thought, is that a fair characterization or is there more to it? All right. So, so the idea of militarism is the elevation of the military means of organization, of reliance on the military apparatus as a centerpiece of life. And of course, you, you see this even in the, the founding going back to America, there's an effort to do what? Have civilian control of the military. That is extremely rare in the history of mankind to have civilian control of the military. Why was that a concern for those who were trying to construct the rules that would govern our country? Precisely because of this point, they realized that if you elevate the military, I mean, go back to Madison. He talks about war being the greatest threat to liberty. Why? On the one hand, he points out there's the fiscal aspects. There's debt, there's taxation, there's the fiscal costs. But if you continue with that quote, he goes on to talk about how the power, the discretionary power of the executive branch and other branches of government are going to expand. And when those expand, they necessarily come at the expense of private social power. And so what the founders were trying to do is figure out a way to simultaneously have an an apparatus that can protect us against genuine threats, but on the other hand, come up with ways of separating that power. And so they wanted to create a military, but not have the military run the military. They wanted civilian checks on it. And so that's just one kind of connection with the, with the deeper history of the country. And so that, that's how I view militarism. And again, when you start viewing the military as, the, as kind of a, a hammer and the primary hammer, everything's a nail. And if you look around the world, that's kind of how people talk now. Yeah. It's like the Middle East, Korea, Iran, you know, China. So it's almost like everything has to be a war and, and there's always something lurking around the corner. And that just doesn't it doesn't pan out empirically if you think about it. Like if you actually look at just basic statistics on terrorism, the investment the US government has made since 9-11 makes little sense. Even if you use extremely generous assumptions in, in kind of traditional cost-benefit analysis, it makes no sense. And so um, that's why I think it's it's such a dangerous kind of culture and ideology. All right. Well, any last words around the table? That seemed like a good good note to end on. Uh, yeah. Very enlightening conversation. I think there's a lot of listeners out there that wouldn't have thought about these things. So Chris, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening and make sure you pass the word about our podcast if you, if you have some friends that might like to listen to us too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.